So we are going to be concluding our series in Ephesians today. We'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 24. So we may have the verses on the screen, but if you have your Bibles, you can feel free to turn there. And before I get too ahead of myself, uh, let us pray again, ask the Lord to be with us as we worship him in the study of the word. Oh, holy God, Lord, we need you to um, liven our hearts, um, to shed your light on your word, prepare us to receive it. Lord, we pray that you would speak through me. Jesus, whatever individual nugget you have for anyone here, Lord, we ask that you would do your work. So we pray this in your name. Amen. Yeah, so I feel quite honored to get to bring this epistle to its close. Um, so this is the passage that is popularly known as the armor of God. You might have a little uh, heading at the top of the section. Um, and this really is the capstone to this whole uh, letter that Paul has written that ties together um, a bunch of themes that have been played out. So, so this is wonderful. Um, last week I was talking with Pastor Mike about this passage. And, uh, and we were discussing why it has been placed where it has been in this letter. Why is it at the very end of it? Um, and we were discussing how it's easy for us to, to cut up different books of the Bible into their different chapters, and then even within a chapter, we'll have different headings, so even smaller divisions. And then we have verse numbers, even smaller, smaller divisions. And it's easy for us to... Um, to pick a verse, pick one little section, and it speaks to us and ministers to us, and we want to just meditate on that little bit, which has its time and place. But we can easily fall into the trap of forgetting that there are themes that biblical writers are developing through the course of their whole book. So there's a background um, that this armor of God passage is set up against. So we need to remember what this background is. So immediately before the armor of God passage, uh, we have Paul expounding on what a Christian household should look like. He talks about husbands loving wives, wives loving their husbands through submission, children being obedient to parents, um, man of the house, you know, be kind to your household slaves. They had slaves at the time. Um, so, so we have this household code, code that Paul is giving exhortations uh, concerning. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul exhorts his readers, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have received, to which you have been called. Well, what does it look like to walk in a manner worthy of the calling? He says it looks like humility, it looks like gentleness. It looks like patience, bearing with one another in love, keeping the unity of the Spirit with the bond of peace. Later in chapter 4, Paul says, Put off the old self, 
to which your former life, your former manner of life uh, was being walked after. And after you put off the old self, he says, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And he goes on in uh, that chapter, chapter four, to talk about what is this new man like? This new man speaks truth, not lies. He's angry, but he does not sin. Try working out how that, how that plays out. The new self no longer steals. There's no corrupt speech on his mouth, and he does not grieve the Holy Spirit. Chapter 5 has a bunch of other exhortations. No sexual immorality, no filthy joking, being thankful always, and making the best use of time. And this is just a, a little spread. There's many more. I just cherry-picked some to put in my notes. So you can read these and think, yes, this is all good. But is it actually easy to, to walk it out even once you've placed your faith in Jesus? And I think the answer that we all have experienced is no. We see the ideal and we would like to walk in it, but something keeps getting in our way. And this passage at the end of the letter is put here to give some sort of explanation as to why it's difficult for us as followers of Jesus to be following these exhortations that we have. And it is precisely because there is a battle that is going on. So these exhortations will not go without um, opposition. There is opposition. Submission within the family will not go unhindered, and the effort to put on the new self will be resisted. There is an enemy who defies the Christian and defies the pursuit to be conformed into the image of Jesus. So the question is, who is this enemy? So I want to address three things as we walk through this passage. Um, I want to uh, wrestle with who is our true enemy I want to consider what shall we be clothed with? So we'll consider the armor of God. And then lastly, I want to consider what does it look like to put on the armor of God? What are the means through which we will actually put on these pieces? Okay? So let's go ahead and read together Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 24. Get it all in our heads, get it all in our hearts. So Paul writes in verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the bre uh, breastplate of righteousness 
and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you also may know how I am doing. Tychius, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So who is our enemy? Paul tells us our enemy is not flesh and blood. We do not wrestle with flesh and blood. So uh, this seems counter to my experience. Um, I don't know who in here has any kind of customer service experience or, or background at any point. Um, this might sound like a silly illustration. Um, I, I work as a barista at a coffee shop in Laguna Hills called Steelhead Coffee. Visit me sometime. Um, little, little plug. And sometimes I am trying to close down my store. And there are two different kinds of regular black hot coffee that someone can order. They can order just a regular drip coffee. We, we brew a big batch, someone orders coffee, I say, sure, here you go. I pour a little tab, coffee comes out into a cup, and I give it to them. Easy. They're out the door in 20 seconds. If they want to spend a little bit more money, they can order a pour-over. When someone orders a pour-over, they are my enemy, <laughs> especially when we're closing in about 20 minutes, because I'm trying to to wash everything. I'm sweeping and mopping, doing the dishes. I'm telling people to leave. And someone comes in and orders a pour over. And that means I need to go and grind some fresh coffee, take a kettle, put it on the kettle, heater upper, get the water to the right temperature, and then spend three minutes pouring water over the beans. And then I have to clean all of those again. So I'm tempted to view this person as my enemy coming through the front door. I just know who's going to order a pour-over when, uh, when I see them because there's a certain look about them. <laughs> now, we also might be tempted to view as our enemy that guy who cuts us off on the freeway, and we're you know, going too slow for him, so he lets the bird fly, if you know what I'm talking about. Um, puts on his brakes just to grind our gears. <laughs> um, on a more serious note, we might be tempted to view the lobbyists in, uh, in D.C. 
who are advocating for certain policies that we do not agree with as our enemies. We might be tempted to view advocates for, let's say, Planned Parenthood as our enemies. We might be able to view the people who are advocating for the LGBT community as our enemies. But is this what Paul thinks when he talks about enemies? And it looks like the answer is no. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What Paul is talking about is a wrestling against spiritual beings. So I want to walk through some of the terminology that he uses. So he first describes this wrestling against a being that he calls the devil. Now, the devil is a title that is used by New Testament um, New Testament authors for this chief spiritual rebel against the God of Israel. This is not a name, but it is a title that is describing something that he does. Uh, the name or the title is, um, you could translate it either as a slanderer or an accuser. So, when you're reading the New Testament in English translation, if, if the Greek word diabolos is um, referring to a spiritual being, it'll just leave it as devil. If it is a human who is acting as a diabolos, it'll render it something like an accuser, someone who stands against, someone who is slandering your name, okay? The New Testament doesn't give this individual the dignity of a personal name. So my, my favorite Christian song of all time is Before the Throne. And the second verse in this song, I think, is so powerful. And I think that it, um, at multiple points, it uh, illustrates what we're talking about today. The second verse, it says, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of my guilt within... Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. That is the function of the devil in our lives. He stands and he reminds us of our sin, accusing us, slandering us. And because he has no legal right to do that before the throne of God anymore, he will come at us and try and convince us that we are still dirty, rotten sinners, that we have not been made clean in the blood of the Lamb. Because we're humans, we will try to follow the Lord, and, and we'll mess up, and the devil will jump on those occasions to point it out, to highlight it, and to make us feel like we're dirty and that the Lord is disappointed in us, or perhaps that we can't share our faults among the congregation of followers of Jesus, lest they look down on us also, and they become our slanderers, right? So we wrestle against the devil. And Paul uses these other terms, rulers and authorities, 
this is Paul's favorite language for, for spiritual beings. Uh, he's used it already in the book of Ephesians. Um, so if you're reading Ephesians in one sitting, uh, and, you know, it wasn't months ago, and you remember everything that Paul has said before, Paul talks about the rulers and authorities here, and you think, oh, yeah, Paul, he mentioned that back in chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. So Christ has been risen from the dead. He's now in the heavenlies at the right hand. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the ones to come. So Christ in his resurrection is above all rulers and authorities, all of those spiritual beings that we must do battle with. In a different uh, letter that Paul wrote, Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, it's this beautiful poem that Paul wrote um, just praising Jesus. And in it, chapter 1, verse 16, he says, By him, that is Jesus, all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, and here's our word, or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So it seems like rulers and authorities, it could be a title for both malevolent spiritual beings who are opposed to the work of God or um, spiritual beings who are in allegiance with the God of Israel. But regardless, just a blanket statement, all of them have been created for Jesus. In some mysterious way, even the rebellious rulers and authorities will in the end glorify Jesus perhaps because he overcomes them. And then we have this, this next category, the cosmic powers over this present darkness. So this is a reference to the spiritual beings who are enslaving the nations. In the epistle to Col- uh, the Corinthians, You know, Paul's talking about all of the people out there who are worshiping false gods, false idols. And Paul does not say that they are worshiping imaginary beings. He says they are worshiping a category that he calls demons. There are true spiritual beings behind the the nations, the gods that the nations worship. But Paul calls them demons. He brings them down a rank. And Paul is calling them right here the cosmic powers over the present darkness. According to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, earlier in the letter, he says, At one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. On a similar note in Colossians, the same hymn where he's praising Jesus, he says that, Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So we at one time were enslaved to these cosmic powers, but Jesus has exodused us out from the Egypt of tyranny that we were under. 
I was, this is, forgive this little rabbit trail. I was reading in, um, I was reading a psalm earlier this week, and, uh, and in it, he was talking about praying to the Lord all day long, and he had three points of the day that he went through. He said, evening, morning, and midday. And this is a reflection of uh, the way that um, Israelites conceive of the day. It does not begin at sunrise. It begins at sunset. It begins at night. And I think that this is a reflection of Genesis chapter 1, where in, on day 1, it is darkness. And it is in the midst of that dark first day that the Lord breaks through his light. He comes in and he overcomes the darkness. And I was just thinking, wow, what would it be like to, uh, to be consciously thinking of our day like that? The day begins in darkness, and then the Lord overcomes the darkness every single day. Um, but this, this is the narrative of uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. We were in the darkness, and then the Lord delivered us from it, brought us into the light. And then lastly, he has just a blanket statement. Uh, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Just Let's just mention them in one fell swoop. So these are not our enemies. So that begs the question, what do we do when there are humans who are acting like our enemies? How do we relate to them? How do we view them? So we should be reminded, human beings are the image of God, which means that there is a certain value on them. God has gone to great lengths to demonstrate his love and his desire to, to bring deliverance to all men. Okay, so there is a certain value placed on even our so-called human enemies. So what do we make of these humans who stand as our stumbling blocks? I think, number one, we need to have a change of perspective when interacting with these sort of humans. We need to reckon that they are no more than pawns who are being influenced and controlled by the true enemy who is in the, the heavenly realm, okay? This is a certain paradigm, shif paradigm shift in perspective that we must adopt. We must train ourselves to have these kinds of eyes that view human beings not as our enemies, but as being provoked by the true enemy. And when identifying this, then the next point is, what do we do in response to them? And the answer is simple. They are a human made in the image of God who the Lord wants to redeem. We need to pray for them. Which is no new teaching. This is all over the gospel accounts. Uh, I think Jesus said something to the extent of pray for your enemy. You know, this is something we must take seriously if we are followers of Jesus. Humans are not our enemies. So that brings us to point number two. Uh, what shall we be clothed with? No fool is going to enter into a battleground and then once, uh, I'm a Lord of the Rings fan, so, you know, once the Urukai start, you know, attacking, it's like, oh, maybe I should, maybe I should go find where my sword is. Maybe I should, you know, put my helmet on. Uh, that's silly. So what shall we be clothed with? 
we have a description of the armor of God in this passage. Paul opens this up by saying, be strong in the Lord and in his might. So what this right off the bat tells us is that our power, our strength, our armor is not something that is inherently in us. It is from outside of us. Okay? That means there's no just mustering up of my ability. You know, we have words like faith, trust. It's not just, I need to just learn how to trust more. I need to build up more faith in myself. No, this is something that is outside of us. It is the Lord's strength. It is his might that we must put on. There is this uh, motif that is kind of sprinkled through the Old Testament. Um, Certain biblical scholars call it the divine warrior motif. And it is those passages, such as the psalm that we read this morning, um, or the song that Israel sang after they crossed the Red Sea. Um, It's also all through Isaiah, this divine warrior motif, where you have these visions of the God of Israel going out to do battle against his enemies. And it, it's very graphic. There's, there's a, one psalm at the beginning of the Psalter that envisions the Lord riding, not, not flying on a cloud, but riding a cherubim like a horse out of heaven in order to go and fight a spiritual battle alongside King David as King David was fighting uh, against Saul. It's awesome. And these, uh, these passages, they are very instructive for us as we're reading this passage in Paul. So a lot of people will expound on Paul's armor of God passage and paint this picture of um, the Roman soldier. And there are a lot of parallels between the armor of God and then what a Roman soldier would wear. Um, I think that perhaps that is in the backdrop of what Paul is saying, but the first context from which he's drawing his imagery from is actually the Old Testament. It is these divine warrior passages. Uh, So I'll read just one verse. This is from Isaiah chapter 59, verse 17. It's a divine warrior passage describing God as doing battle against spiritual evil. He, that is God, put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Two of those might have rung a bell because Paul has literally word for word taken this idea out of Isaiah. So these characteristics, righteousness, faith, these are the characteristics that God himself is clothed with. So what that tells me is I'm re- as I'm reading this is that when we're putting on the armor of God, we are being clothed in his characteristics. It seems to me like Paul is expanding on an idea that he's already put forward in the letter, which is to put off the old self 
and put on the new self, which is being made into the likeness of Jesus. He put that, that little statement out there at the beginning of, beginning of the letter, and now he is expanding on it and giving us this, this mental image to, to meditate on. To put on the new self is to be clothed in the armor of God, in God's characteristics. So how does one put on the new self, the armor of God? Um, I have two thoughts, and I want to share one now, and I'm going to share one as we conclude. Uh, Paul in uh, Epistle 2 Corinthians, chapter 3, verse 18, he says, We all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So Paul's talking about this transformation into the image of Jesus as being paired with beholding his glory. So we're talking about not just a passing glance. I I read something quickly. I saw a picture of Jesus. But this intent meditation, this intent dwelling on the glory of Jesus. Um, There was this moment this past week. So I teach a class at Calvary Chapel Bible College in Costa Mesa. Um, I'm doing a Genesis class this term. And uh, I have one student in the class. Hopefully he's not listening to this right now Um, on uh, on the internet. But, you know, every person has, you know, their little turns of phrase that they say that are unique to them. And as I've been talking all semester, we're nearing the end, um, I noticed him say something. Uh, We do a lot of group conversation. It's not just me lecturing. We do a lot of group conversation. I invite them to, to respond with questions and to share their thoughts. And he gave a little turn of phrase, and I thought to myself, you got that from me. <laughs> um, and and it, was, it wasn't his insight, but it was the way he phrased his insight. He had been hearing me enough. He had been beholding the way that I speak and I teach enough to where he just started adopting my language. Um, and I didn't say anything. I just thought it was really funny. <laughs> um, but as I was thinking about Ephesians and beholding Christ, I think there's a parallel here. The more time that is spent not just being near someone, but actually paying attention to what they're saying, what they're doing, it is going to influence who you are, the way that you speak, the way that you think, the way that you interact with people. We could also, I mean, we could think about, you know, young children who are absorbing everything. You're not talking with them. You don't realize that they're listening, but then all of a sudden they say something, and you're like, oh, shoot. Like, I should have been more careful. One of my friends has a, has a five-year-old right now, and I'm amazed at how much he is picking up and how much he probably shouldn't be picking up. Um, but that, that's just the nature of be- being around people. We need to be around Jesus dwelling on him, beholding him, and the characteristics of Jesus will naturally 
start to be formed in us. So that is is one thought. We're going to revisit that this at the end of a uh, the end of this message. Um, but let's address some of the elements of of the armor. So Paul starts off by talking about the belt of truth. So truth, we must both know what is true and we must appropriate the truth of who we are in Jesus. So that is to say, we shouldn't just intellectually know what is true out there, but we must know what is true and bring it to our remembrance when whatever situation, you know, arises. So to revisit the the hymn before the throne, verse 2, when Satan tempts me to despair and reminds me of my guilt within, what does the hymn writer say? Upward I look and I see him there who made an end of all my sin. He combats the slander, the accusation of the devil with the truth that he has been made clean by the blood of the the lamb who stands there advocating for him. The devil's native language is lies according to Jesus in the gospel of John and we must appropriate what is true when the accusation comes our way. Um, I had a friend who was sharing some of his testimony of just what the Lord has done in his life um, a couple years ago. And he was sharing about how at one point in his life he had an eating disorder and he was seeing uh, a therapist concerning it um, who was a follower of Jesus. And the prescribed um, practice that this therapist gave for him is uh, they wrote out together on pieces of paper true statements of what God says about him. And whenever he was being, um, having accusations hurled at him by the enemy uh, of his body image and, and whatever, the therapist had him, you know, he had this stack of pieces of paper and he would pull out one and then pull out another, you know, whenever he needed to. And he would dwell on what was true about him, what God said about him. So we must both know the truth and appropriate it, strap it on like a belt. The breastplate of righteousness, one of the, uh, one of the pieces that are explicitly taken from, from Isaiah. There's, I think there's two, two parts to this righteousness. Part of righteousness is who we are right now. We are currently in right standing before God. That is why the devil has no legal accusation he can make toward God against us. Jesus has paid for that. So he can turn to us and try to convince us that we are no good, that we are despicable in the eyes of God. Um, But legally, we are in right standing. We are righteous before God. We must know that and we must affirm it and remind ourselves of that regularly. There is another aspect, though, of righteousness that I think we as evangelicals shy away from, lest we sound too Catholic. (laughs) Um, And it is moral righteousness. 
a moral righteousness that we are commanded by the Lord to be growing in as we continue walking with the Lord. And this is a characteristic of God. And the idea is, as we are continually being made more into the image of Jesus, as we continue to develop over time a righteous morality and begin to walk in that, the devil will have less of a foothold in our lives. This, of course, does not mean that we won't screw up here and there. We are human. But let us not fall under the uh, way of thinking that says, you know, we are sinners and therefore we can just throw our hands up like, ah, of course I just did it again. You know what I mean? We need to strive towards a moral righteousness because this is what we are being formed into according to Jesus. And this is our armor against the, the, the foothold of the enemy. We have shoes that are ready with the gospel. This is also from Isaiah. And Paul actually quotes it, not in, quotes it directly in the epistle to the Romans. He just alludes to it here. But Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, how beautiful are the feet, or how beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of him who brings good news. Feet that are prepared and ready with the gospel of peace is actually seen as a piece of armor against the enemy. So as we grow more into the likeness of Jesus, we are expected to be growing in a greater readiness to proclaim the good news of our God, the good news of peace. Perhaps this is part of our protection because when the accusations of the enemy are being hurled our way, it's precisely the good news that we proclaim which declares that the enemy has been defeated, that he has no weapon. The weapon that he had against humanity was death, and death was conquered at the cross and the resurrection. The only true weapon the enemy has against us is to kill us. But when we are born again in Jesus, we too share in Jesus' resurrection. There is no true weapon that the enemy has against us. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, the readiness to proclaim it to ourselves and to others combats the powers of darkness. Now he talks about the shield of faith. Um, and the, the flaming darts that this shield of faith can, can protect you against. So, Braveheart, anybody? Anyone a fan of Braveheart? Every hand should be in the air right now. It's, this, it's the second best movie ever made, in my opinion. You can ask me what the first one is later. The students probably know because I reference it too much, and none of them have watched it. Um, <laughs> but you guys might remember who has seen Braveheart. One of the two battles that they have, the battle that they actually won, <laughs> um, you know, England is, is set up against them, and then, uh, and then the Scottish, led by L William Wallace, 
is set up on the other side of the, of the plane, and you have these arrows that are being launched at them um, by the English, just all shooting up in the air, and what do uh, the Scotsmen do? They have their shields, and they crouch down against the ground, and they put the shields up, and it protects them, and some of them have shields that are too small, so they still get hit with an arrow. Um, that's too bad for them. Um, but <laughs> but the shield that protects from the darts that are being hurled. Now, and, and, and this, is, this is faith. This is faith, which, uh, what is faith? Faith is a funny Christian word that simply means trust. It means placing your trust in someone. Do we trust the Lord to protect us against the darts of the enemy. You know, we might have our, our first answer, which is yes, because that's the right answer. And then there's the real answer, which is do I actually <laughs> believe? Um, that's something for us to wrestle with. But what kind of darts are being thrown against us? So there are the literal darts of the enemy, um, which, you know, you read the Old Testament. And if David is talking about darts being thrown at him by the enemy— He's probably talking about real bows and arrows, literally trying to pierce him, right? So war, physical persecution um, can be a means of literal darts. And this would be the category of human beings being the pawns of spiritual darkness, hurling physical (laughs) harm our way. But are darts just something that is physical? I think evil in society could be a form of the fiery darts that are being hurled. The backstabbing that, that one might experience from someone you thought was a colleague of yours. When the enemy inspires a human to, to speak poorly of you in a workplace in order that they can climb the ladder. Uh, and Lord forbid that happen in the church, but we all know that it does. People get ran out because of fiery darts that are being thrown. Let us hide behind the shield of faith, trusting that the Lord is going to protect us, that he is going to have the day. And we've already addressed the mental attacks, the attacks that the enemy hurls at us personally, hurling insults. Now, the helmet of salvation, this is another um, piece of armor that the Lord um, personally is clothed with, according to Isaiah. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. So when the Lord wears a helmet of salvation, this characteristic, he's wearing it as one who brings salvation. Um, that is to say, who delivers people from oppression, who delivers them from the domain of darkness, who delivers people from physical like deliverance, as he did the Israelites out of Egypt. But we too wear a helmet of salvation. So is this salvation in a different sense. And I think that if for God, the helmet of salvation is this characteristic where he brings salvation to people, 
we wear salvation as a badge, as people who have been delivered from the domain of darkness. We once were people who were under the tyranny of spiritual evil, but now we have been made slaves to Jesus. So the question is, do you know that you are saved? Do you know that you are no longer obligated to obey the powers of darkness when they tempt you? You are a slave to Jesus now. He has purchased you. That is what redemption means. He's purchased you to be a part of his kingdom. So we've already been delivered. Now, the sixth piece that he mentions It's the sword of the Spirit. So the first offensive weapon, and I don't think I need to spend a a lot of time on this because it's touching on the same things that we've already been talking about, appropriating truth when the enemy hurls insults at us, when he hurls accusations. Well, where do we get truth? We know that the enemy has had his power broken precisely because the Word of God has informed us that it does. And should we not have a conviction of what is truth based on the word of God, then we have no means to respond to the enemy when he hurls insults at us. We will be subject to believe him. When he tells us that mm, the family of believers, you, you, you have done one too many sins, they aren't going to accept you. If I don't have the foundation of the word of God to stand on, I'm going to believe the enemy. He has a good idea of how to get into my head. So are we picking up the sword in order to know truth, in order to respond to the enemy when the accusation comes? So there are six pieces of armor here. But there's a seventh piece. And seven, this shouldn't be a surprise to us that Paul picked seven. This is a pretty significant number in scripture. Seven days, or six days of creation, and on the seventh day, it's like this grand uh, celebration. Hey, we're all just going to rest um, and enjoy, enjoy life. So the seventh Peace. It stands out from the rest because it has this special slot of number seven. It is the one element that is not attached to any uh, metaphorical piece. It's not a weapon um, attached to a weapon. It's not attached to a piece of armor. It stands on its own. And Paul devotes the most amount of time to developing this idea, and that is prayer. So let me go ahead and refresh us. What does Paul say about prayer? In verse 18, number seven, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the good news for which I am an ambassador. So, 
Paul has twice so far in the uh, epistle given us an example of prayer, okay? Uh, Chapter 1, verse 15 through 23, he's praying for the Ephesians. And then chapter 13, verse 14, chapter 3, verse 14 through 21, he again prays for the, uh, the followers of Jesus who are in Ephesus. And the things that he prays for them are instructive for us. He doesn't pray that they would have material wealth. He doesn't pray that they would not have persecution. Um, He doesn't pray for, you know, the single people in the church to find a spouse. He prays in both times that they would have a greater revelation of who Jesus is, that they would know that Jesus is above all of the rulers and authorities, that they would have assurance that they have been delivered and have new life in Jesus. What Paul wants the people to know as he's praying for them is uh, that Jesus is king and they are found in him and he wants them to see him more clearly. Now, I think that this is instructive for us when we think about what, it, what is necessary to behold the face of Jesus. Beholding Jesus is how we're transformed into his likeness. But how can we be transformed into his likeness if we are not seeing him clearly? if we don't have a revelation of who he is in truth. So I think point seven, praying at all times, this is the means through which we are putting on the characteristics of Jesus, this armor, because it is through prayer, and specifically prayer for a greater vision of who God is, uh, that we have even the option of beholding him. I'm reminded of, uh, I can't remember if it was at the beginning of the, no, no, it wasn't the Ephesians series. We went through Peter before Ephesians, and uh, Pastor Mike, he had this metaphor of prayer being this supply line um, in, the time of, uh, in the time of war. You know, if you were in war, uh, the time of the Old Testament, people would besiege the city, they'd surround it and cut them off from any outside help coming in, and this is a way to starve them out. Uh, you need some kind of uh, assistance coming in, and prayer is this supply line that is coming in, this constant pumping in of more and more revelation of who Jesus is in our lives. And Paul, he instructs that we, as we're praying, we must be praying in the Holy Spirit. So what is this praying in the Spirit? Just two quick thoughts as we start to wrap things up. We're talking about a dependence on the Holy Spirit to prompt us when to pray, what to pray for, and who to pray for. We can quickly enter into a time of prayer and we can just let our mouths go many, many directions. But Paul is advocating for a posture in prayer where we have a kind of stillness, a kind of silent um, posture where we are open to him telling us what to pray for and who to pray for. 
It's a partnership. It's not just a monologue like I'm doing right now. (laughs) God wants to speak to us and to lead us in our prayers, and Paul wants us to be open to that. Now, he tells them to be praying at all times and in all ways, and he concludes his exhortation to prayer with a prayer request. He asks them to be praying for him because Paul is convinced that the only way he can continue in his ministry, the only way that he can speak boldly is if he has this supply line from God, is if Paul himself has a greater revelation of who Jesus is. We can easily fall under this false notion that Paul was some kind of superhero and didn't struggle with all the things that we struggle with. At one point, Paul says, be anxious for nothing, but with all prayer and supplication, make your requests be known to God. So we read that and we think, well, Paul's the kind of guy who has learned never to be anxious. But then you read elsewhere, and he talks about being filled with anxiety. (laughs) Paul was a man who was like us, but he knew his dependence on the Lord, and he was quick to ask everybody to partner with him, to intercede for him, to pray for him, that he would have revelation of Jesus, that he too might have the armor of God being put on him. Okay? So, let us not think that any of us are above the intercession of one another. It is a lie from hell that Christians can do a walk with Jesus on their own. This is not the model given to us in Scripture, and it's just practically not the case. We, as a family of Jesus, need one another with physically, for physical means, for physical support um, in times of need, but also spiritually, we must be praying for one another um, that we all would have the armor of God being put on. You know what I'm saying? So, in conclusion, one does not p- wait to to consider putting on the new self, the characteristics of Jesus, until attack is already coming. You know, once, once we start having this spiritual oppression, these thoughts coming in that we are not who we are in Jesus, that is not the point when we start thinking, oh, I, I need to start learning what is truth. I need to start developing trust in God. I need to start being ready to proclaim the good news of Jesus. These are things that we ought to be developing before the battle. So my charge to you is pray, and pray every day that the Lord would give you an increased awareness of who God is, what he is in your personal life, how he is working all around you. Give you Ask him to give you eyes to see what he's doing because I'm convinced that even when it is subtle, the Lord is always at work. So we must pray for greater revelation of him. And when that greater revelation comes, or even if it is a small amount of revelation that you have now, I charge you to behold the face of Jesus. 
to consider him, to meditate on him. And in your imagination, as you're reading scripture, you're reading the gospel accounts, just imagine what it would look like to be there in Israel in the first century. Use all of your facets to to be meditating and contemplating and just chewing on who Jesus is. And as we do so, the Holy Spirit does a transformative work in our lives, which lasts our entire lives, um, but the process is part of the fun of it, right? So let me pray for us um, as uh, the worship band leads us in a time of reflection and response. And I do believe the, uh, the ushers will come forward to collect today's offering. So Lord Jesus, Lord, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see you more clearly. Lord, remind us of who we are in you. Jesus, when the accuser comes and plants thoughts in our heads, Jesus, we pray that you would remind us of what is true, what you have already accomplished, the good plans that you have in store for us in the new heavens and new earth as you resurrect us. Jesus, and I pray that for all of us, as you give us this revelation, teach us the discipline to spend time meditating on you to not just be rushing through life, but to actually make space to have silence and stillness. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit who does this transformative work in us. Lord, and I pray that in this response time, Lord, that you would meet us and you'd speak to us and that you would be glorified above all else. We pray this in your name. Amen.